0: Good
1: afternoon and welcome. It's budget day, or should I say the release of the Progressive Conservative election platform. The government had to change one of its own laws to delay it this close to the election. Remember, after the PCs were elected, they passed a law saying that budgets had to come down by March 31st, so they had to pass another law to change it back. Now, this budget seems to have something for everyone with many things having already been announced or leaked. So the most recent revelation was that they will expand eligibility for the low income tax credit to people earning up to $50,000 a year. Previously the threshold was 38,000. So uh is that Among the other measures we've been talking about, is that enough to get your vote, to get your attention? There's also been $100,000 over three years for home care. A lot of people saying that's still not enough and uh, increases to the health care system, to hospitals and highways, highways. And they're talking about making housing more affordable. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. Forty, And now, let's go to Bob Richardson, liberal strategist and senior counsel to National Public Relations, and John McCutishon, a conservative political consultant and president of Bradgate Research Group. Hi, thanks for joining us. Hello, Libby.
2: Happy to be here.
1: Mm-hmm. Great to have you here. Bob, let's begin uh, with you. Uh, what do you make of all this? Is it, is it just their election platform.
3: Well, yeah, it is just their look, it's a political document, it's not a fiscal document. This this document will not even be debated in the legislature, it will not be passed in the legislature. So, this is a bit of political theater, and I don't say that negatively because quite frankly any any party that was in office would be doing the same thing right now, but let's let's put it in its proper context. It will also be very much a good news budget. Um uh, it will talk about growth, it'll talk about employment, it will say the deficit's down. Uh, one thing they won't say, thank you, federal government, for spending a lot of money in Ontario in the last two years. Um, so, and I think it's an opportunity to clean up some of your uh, previous uncompleted uh, uh, promises, and I think there'll be a focus on affordability for it. Um I, I think that's the positive side. The negative side on, on the budget is, look, this guy promised a big tax cut he didn't deliver from four years ago. He promised lower hydro rates, they're higher. He promised a $0.10 cent cut in gas, not to do with the Fed himself. That didn't happen. So as you uh, and also the, the final point I would make is they went on and on and on about how fiscally irresponsible the wind government was. Charles Sousa, the former finance minister, looks like he's from the Fraser Institute. When you compare his stats uh, with this government on spending, oh, both pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, and now, if I can call this period, the post-pandemic period. So uh, so there are positives, there are negatives, but this is all about politics. It's not really that much about finance.
1: Uh, John, what do you say to that?
2: Uh, for the most part, I agree with Bob. Um uh, you know, right in all of his basic uh, premises and right on his uh, concerns about the government versus its promises. Uh, but but let's let's look at two key things there that, that I'd like to highlight. One was brand new government, right? So after 15 years of liberal incompetence, not building, not spending, throwing out PPE and not replacing it and the world pandemic hits, and that's what this government dealt with. Uh, there's, there's two big things, right? One is simply that, uh, first time for the Conservative Party in power in 15 years. Um, a, a guy and a whole bunch of cabinet people that uh, on-the-job training. And they got a couple things that they thought would go right that something like a pandemic hits. And like Bob said, they had to change the rules back to be held to, to even have the announcement of the budget today. The second part is, uh, when you look at, uh, you know, agree with Bob and all the other assessments, except fundamentally, uh when we go back to an election uh, are you better off than you were 4 years ago does the government deserve to be reelected and sadly for the opposition people have to say we want a new government before they get to the choice of well if not them who and i think for the most part ontarians are going to say we're pretty satisfied with it not thrilled not 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 wildly happy but they're content well, and that's the first death knell for the liberals and NDP. And the second is if for the people who are unhappy and say, "I want a new government," you look at the choices, and it's a pretty sad pick.
1: Well, uh, that's that's a whole other, definitely election-related issue that is is the ballot question. Does it have to do with anything in the budget? Uh, I'm not sure it does, but. One of the things that strikes me now, of course, we have a very special interest in older Canadians, and they did announce some money for home care, which is a key thing. But, you know, it kind of the amount, um, the amount over three years sort of pales in comparison to what they're spending to give us rebates on our license plate stickers.
3: Yeah, I think it looks like peanuts. I'm surprised that uh, the number is as low as it is, uh, given uh, the nature of the problem in, uh, in uh, we're talking about long-term care here, right, Libby? Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: So, well, and it's, you know, it's, this, it, it, it's for home care, which uh, will keep care. people out of long-term, out of long-term care. care. Yeah, it seems
3: to be a very small amount of money, uh, given the size and scope of the problem. And also what's coming down the track, uh, from a Democrat, uh, from a demographic perspective. So that does surprise me a little, little, I thought that there, um, that there, there would be a greater emphasis on, uh, on more money for long-term care, more money for home care, uh, more, more money in those sort of areas where there was clearly, it's been deficient over the last 15 to 20 years. So, um, so that did surprise me a little. And that, that may be something that, uh, that there's always something in a budget that comes back to bite you uh and maybe that might be uh might be the one that we're seeing here today.
1: Well, so John, here's here's what I think about the whole thing. So first of all, the way it has been handled with all these scattershot announcements, you know, 120 beds here, some other beds there, it's it's really kind of piecemeal. I don't see an overarching strategy, which actually we just heard from the liberals. If you believe the liberals and they are, uh, sort of acknowledging that, that they created a lot of the problems. But so to me, I thought the biggest Achilles heel for the PCs were the number of people that died in long term care, the just horrific conditions there and clearly uh, they're they're hoping that people forget and they seem to be targeting more on on a younger suburban demographic that wants highways and housing and uh John frankly forgetting who it is that votes
2: um i'm i'm going to say i'm very sad to agree with you libby <laughs> um Look, I think the great shock that we have learned from this pandemic is that older Canadians, uh, older people across the world, aren't valued the way people are who are 20 years younger than them. Uh, you, you see that fundamentally in uh, the budget allocations and the quickness of response. And and frankly, wave one, so we're in what, wave four heading to five wave of the pandemic. In yeah. wave one, everybody locked down and was afraid because we didn't know. But once they started to figure out that, oh, it's only old people, oh, I'm not in a long-term care home, oh, that doesn't apply to me. and it's, To me, that was shocking and sad, and I'm going to say that the government perspective reflects the Ontario population, let alone the voting pool, because the worst comment I heard, which sickened me, was, well, they're old, they lived good lives. There wasn't the perspective of, wait a minute, <laughs> these people could have 10 or 20 more years. Where's the arbitrary number that you've lived long enough? And somehow society seemed to equate that with if you were in a long-term care home, uh, it was only a matter of time. So if the time was shorter, it wasn't a big deal. And, and I think that says a lot about society and that, the, that plays into every political party's perspective of that. Uh, you know, your comment about the building, the, the announcement of numbers of long-term care beds, I think the government's approach there was announcing numbers in specific places so it had some meaning as opposed to, uh, you know, announcing a number and people not knowing where that was or what that meant. A uh, very clear comparison to the Liberals 15 years where they built virtually no long-term care beds.
1: Th- that's true but but everyone says okay yes and and they promise 30,000 everybody says yes okay we need these long term care beds but but that is a bad model particularly for uh baby boomers People in my generation, like, we're, we're not going there. No, <laughs> and, 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 there's and, look, and there's too many of us anyway. No,
2: too, right. So that's the other thing, right? If you wanted to go, there's no room yeah. to get in. And, and, and nobody gives you the numbers on how many people died waiting. Although we know that a huge part of the hospital backlog problem is there aren't beds in hospitals because if you're an older person who can't go home because you need care before you can get to long-term care, or some kind of assisted care, they keep you in the hospital. So well, yeah, it, it all
1: backs up. It all backs up, and home care, which is much cheaper, if it was more available, there's a, I, I forget the number now, but it's a huge number of people who wouldn't have to go into long-term care.
2: I totally agree with you, and, and here's and here's what just, for the sake of looking for one more thing, the complicates thing for a gov- any government trying to make it better. Uh, you had uh, the first long-term care minister who yeah. was, embattled because of the pandemic um and and merrily because she in, was, was like,
1: hopeless yes Go well, on.
2: okay i was gonna say she's a nice person but i, I wouldn't want to be the person responsible for her report card on her job but you know she was then uh replaced by rod phillips who brought back and i think we all had great hopes that that was a serious effort by the government to take the whole uh, portfolio seriously but then he decides to leave politics so, you know, it gets shelved again fundamentally. Uh,
1: let's move along to Bob. So, Bob, uh, and as you pointed out yesterday, we got some new demographic information that just makes all of this more urgent. And uh, your party, the Liberals, came out with a very impressive offering, I thought. Is, is that going to go anywhere or is it going to be more about uh, who is in charge?
3: Well, it's a big idea, and uh, and I think it says this is an important issue, and it's something that needs to be dealt with, and we can't kind of sweep it under the carpet, which we've done under successive governments for the last twenty five to thirty years. So I give credit to uh, Stephen Del Duca and the Ontario Liberals for coming up uh, with uh, with a big idea, but I think you know if you take a look at the demographics yesterday too as well this home care issue is one and it's hopefully it, it can be a non-partisan issue where we can get buy-in from all the parties because this is critical and it's going to be a really important component. Yes, we are going to need some long-term care facilities um, and they need to be properly run and managed. Uh, yes, but, but we need a massive expansion in home care because I agree with you, Libby. Uh, I think it's going to, after what happened, Uh, during the pandemic, it's going to be very difficult to move, you know, mom or aunt Sally or dad into a long-term care home because a lot of people see it as a death sentence.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, the new ones uh, that they're building are at least have some private rooms, but, but still it's, it's the, as, as uh, Stephen Del Duca called it, it's the warehousing of people And I mean, baby boomers, you know, like we're we're not willing to accept that. I don't think, though, there comes a point where you can't be cared for at home. But I don't know. Um, Let's take a call from Bob in Woodstock. Hi, Bob. How are we doing today, Libby? Fine. Go ahead. You're on the air.
4: Yes, I'm. I'm not impressed with the Ford government. I do realize they inherited quite a mess from the Liberal government, but the impression most people had with with Hydro was he was going to do something for us. And so when he does, he turns around and allows the sale of a public of, of a, public company, of, of a um, government uh, well, of a corporation that belongs to the public,
1: and that, that was really takes me with... off. Pardon.
4: And that—that and that I wasn't impressed with. And the whole thing with government coming along, making all kinds of promises when they want something from us—I think they have to go on their track record, where they really didn't give us anything.
1: So, uh, are you? Do you know who you're going to vote for? <laughs>
4: I wish there was somebody to vote for. I don't see anybody with enough backbone to do anything. They—they they go whichever way the wind happens to be blowing.
1: Okay, well um yep, thank you Bob for that. Well, I guess uh, I guess that's that's part of it. Uh, you know, what what he's saying is he's not happy with what's there and he's not happy with what's on offer.
3: And, yeah, and Libby,
2: uh, I think what you're going to see in that is uh here's my boldest prediction so far of the election. Uh it will be uh the lowest turnout in probably the last three elections. I
3: I, I tend to agree with John on that one. Uh, the second thing is, historically, if you look at first-term majority governments in Ontario, and you can go back as far as the Robarts era, they generally always get a second term. Uh, the one exception to that would have been the election of the Ray government, which was kind of viewed as he fell on a banana peel and came up with the lottery ticket and, and sort of <laughs> won five years in office. Uh, otherwise all the other first term uh, uh governments get reelected so it's a tough mountain to climb for the opposition this time let's be clear about that uh but the the other factor that is th- th- that muddles that a little is Doug Ford himself he's a non-traditional leader uh very non-traditional uh from an Ontario perspective and uh i think either you like him or you dislike him um, whereas previous Ontario leaders have been, shall we say, maybe a little bit more bland, yeah, just and that a little. Might, that might that might impact on the on on the normal circumstance. So that's why you have elections. We got choices here, and uh, we'll see where where this ends up. Uh,
1: John, uh, we are uh, starting to run out of time here. What else do you expect in the budget?
5: Um, I. I <laughs>
2: I can't get into specifics, but I just, you know, it, it's not happening now by by surprise or coincidence, right? So it is going to be a good news budget. The premier has a good track record now of not being uh, tied by fiscal realities.
3: So if you could
2: expect opposition parties to... Uh, to try to buy your vote, then uh, you, know, you should expect the same out of the conservative government.
1: Well, it, it was interesting. I We launched our all-new Recovering Politicians panel this week, and Howard Hampton, the former NDP leader, said it's a bidding war.
3: Well,
2: bidding war in and by segment, right? So uh, the, I think the numbers out yesterday, the baby boomers for the first time aren't growing in number, right? Like the, the group as a, as a whole is, is getting smaller. You know, that's what happens over time. But there's still going to be, in, despite the millennials and younger folk being substantially larger in size already, I still believe it's the boomers, in, even in this election, will be the predominant voters at the polls. Absolutely. Which does, which does not speak well to the opposition parties who haven't had a reason to get out there and, you know, uh, get excited.
1: Well, uh yeah, but I'm not sure it speaks that well to the conservatives because they're they're uh not doing very much for us. Uh Bob, uh, on that note, what do you think as we wrap things up here? Well, I think
3: it'll be an interesting election. Uh I think they uh it will be highly competitive. I mean, you have to give the edge at this point to the uh to doug ford and the conservatives they are the incumbents. history's on their side they have the most members most money uh but i i think you're going to see i think the ontario liberals are going to surprise people they're gonna they were wiped off the map Worst showing since confederation in the last election i think they'll come back with uh with a healthy number of seats and uh they'll be uh ready to dance uh uh ready to dance again and uh ready to uh Uh, ready to uh, hopefully uh, govern the province, if not this time out, uh, the one after.
1: Okay. People, stay tuned here. The budget comes down at 4 o'clock, and we will have full coverage, concise full coverage, I might add. We'll tell you exactly what you need to know that comes out of that. Though, as we said, this budget isn't going to get passed. It just will help you decide... How to Mark Your Ballot. Thank you so much, Bob Richardson and John McAttitian. Thanks, Libby. Pleasure. Bye. We're taking a break. And when we come back, uh, one group that is very unhappy with the Ford government, and that is uh, those are people with disabilities. We will talk to them when we come back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, one group decidedly
1: unhappy with what the government is offering is the Alliance for Ontarians with Disabilities. And joining me now, David Lepofsky, chair of the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities. Disabilities Alliance, and he's also a visiting professor of disability rights at Osgood Hall Law School. Hi, David. How are you? Fine. So today is budget day. Uh, Do you have any hope that there will be anything for people with disabilities there?
6: Well, I can't predict beyond what the news leaks are, and so far nothing is getting uh, us any too excited. But what we really have is a situation where uh, the government uh, of Doug Ford has created kind of a new normal in Ontario, but it's a new normal that's worse for people with disabilities than before. And I want to be clear, you know, I and my coalition are nonpartisan. We're not trying to elect or defeat anyone. We would like all the parties to commit in this upcoming provincial election to reforms that will we'll fix that.
1: Okay, so what are you looking for?
6: Well, we're looking for uh, a series. The first thing we need is a government that's going to say, we will take over and we'll come up with a multi-year action plan to get this province to become fully accessible to people with disabilities. And there's some key components to that. First is rooting out some of the new barriers that the Ford government has created. They, They allowed... A, a protocol to be entrenched in hospitals in the case where where there's a shortage of critical care beds that discriminates against patients with disabilities, that's got to be rooted out. They've allowed municipalities to unleash dangerous electric scooters on our roads and sidewalks and set it, no effective provincial standards to protect that would protect us from the dangers they pose. Um, They've allowed our schools, uh, they're authorizing uh, our spending um, literally hundreds and hundreds of billions that they announce every other day on new hospitals, new schools, and so on, without requiring those new construction uh, projects to be properly disability accessible. Oh, isn't it? Sorry? We want that fixed. We want that fixed.
1: Isn't there a rule that says those buildings have to be accessible?
6: Well, so... You are asking a perfectly reasonable question, and the answer is no. Uh, at least the building code is is uh, decades out of date. The Ontario Human Rights Code requires accessibility, but doesn't spell out the details. We've been trying to get the government to uh, pass regulations that would set standards so builders uh, know what they have to do, and in four years in power, they haven't done a thing about it.
1: Um. What was what we we are learning today is that they are expanding eligibility for a low income tax credit for to people up to an income of fifty thousand. Will that help people with disabilities? I would imagine a lot of them are low income.
6: Yeah, listen. Any any assistance for low income people is going to help people with disabilities because they live at a significant number live at or below the poverty line. Uh, But what what. Uh, what's been called for by advocates for uh, low-income folks has been, uh, you know, some kind of help uh, in the form of adjust, you know, uh, significant uh, adjustments upwards for the Ontario Disability Support Program, which is social assistance aimed at those people with disabilities who who can't support themselves. Uh, but you know, uh, tax credits are great for people who've got tax planners and. A lot of poor people just don't. So,
1: so uh, give me a sense of how much people get now and how much you think uh, they should be getting. Okay,
6: I'm, I'm the wrong person to ask about that because the advocacy that I've been involved in has not been on the income support side, uh, which is a huge issue, but is on removing and, and preventing uh, barriers. What I can tell you, for example, that we've known for years is that uh, um, there are so many barriers for people who are entitled to Ontario disability support, uh, but who get refused that they have to appeal. And those who can get a lawyer and can appeal, um, have a good, uh, uh, track record over the years of winning. So that means whether you w- succeed depends on whether you can get a lawyer, which is sort of a silly way of doing things. But uh, I, I I just want to focus on this sort of the new normal we're talking about. And I'm going to give you an illustration. So the government repealed the mask and vaccine mandates completely, except for hospitals and public transit, I guess. Um, And it did so right as a new wave was hitting us of the most contagious, um, uh, the most contagious variant of COVID that we've seen. So what that's done is, uh, created a new normal. Uh, people who don't feel themselves to be in much danger, well, they can go out and take off their masks and, you know, go to shop at supermarkets and drugstores and all that stuff. Well, meanwhile, people who are immune-compromised are actually worse off than they were two months ago I, I by think a government in, decision. So in, going in, to the supermarket just to buy the necessities of life is now more dangerous to their health.
1: And it's it's interesting. It depends where you go. I'm Most of the places that I go indoors, people are still wearing masks. I mean, that might just be the luck of the draw, but yes, there's not a requirement for it, but as a lot of authorities have said, if you have any sense, you'll be wearing a mask indoors. I, I wanted to ask on the flip side of that, I was given to understand that some things might actually be better for people with disabilities because of the pandemic. You know, for instance, the trend to working from home can make it easier for them to get better jobs. Am I wrong on that?
6: Oh, well, the fact that remote, we've got this new, I mean, this isn't a government policy, let's be clear. But the fact that um, uh, working remotely is now way more accepted than it was before, has been an improvement for those uh, people with disabilities who really need that option and before the pandemic um, would, you know, too often ran into resistance from their employers if they asked for that accommodation. But we've got to look at the places that were safer two months ago and are less safe now. So uh, as an example, Toronto District School Board has a number of schools that are specifically for people with disabilities, children with some disabilities. Uh, most of them are in, um, in, in other schools, but in this limited number of schools, they include a population of students who are medically fragile. And the Toronto District School Board wanted to uh, allow those schools to maintain their mask mandate, and the provincial government, uh, I guess, said no, because they're busy trying to enforce uh, the removal of mandates. And we've gone public and said that's actually a violation of the Human Rights Code by the Ford government. So remember, these schools had a mass mandate in, in February and early March, but all of a sudden, late March, it's essential for them not to have a mass mandate against, according to the Ford government. And vulnerable kids with disabilities deserve better. That's the new normal. And oh. we think that's got to
1: change. Okay. David Lepofsky, thank you so much for that.
6: Good to talk
1: to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, we're taking another break, and when we come back, we will be talking about long, epic lineups for getting a passport and delays. This while people are itching to travel again, and we'll be talking to Michelle Rempel-Garner
0: when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. With COVID restrictions easing, thousands of Canadians are anxious to pick up their delayed travel plans. And here's one big problem. If your documents are not in order, there's a huge backlog of passport applications and lineups at The passport offices are epic. As a matter of fact, you're only supposed to show up in person for an expedited passport if you have confirmed travel in the next 25 days. So here's what chiropractor Ali Karadman found after he drove 45 minutes to the nearest appropriate office.
7: Something has to be done. I stood from 5.30 a.m. to 3 p.m., to get two passports. Also, you can't go into the walk-in unless you're traveling in the next, in the, in 25 business days of your booking of your ticket.
1: Yeah. Like I said, he drove 45 minutes to get there. So, uh, that was, uh, leaving the house Quarter to five in the morning. So, my question is, why is this happening? Presumably, the federal government was functioning and civil servants were being paid in full throughout the pandemic. I am joined by Conservative MP Michelle Rempel Garner from Calgary Nose Hill. Uh, Ms. Garner, welcome and thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So, what is your why do you think this is happening? <sighs> Well, first of all, I want to stress it is happening. Like, um,
8: I, I, I would be surprised if any member of parliament in the country right now isn't getting just a huge volume of calls on this issue. I certainly have been. Um, I think it's a few things from what we're, we're hearing. Number one, there's just not enough resources. Uh, I don't think the government planned for uh, the demand in travel that obviously would follow... Lifting of some of the travel restrictions related to the pandemic, and then the second component is there's just a lot of confusion and process. So, for example, um, we've I've had some some folks tell me uh, and call my office that they've been told to, uh, if they needed an expedited passport, to go straight to the Service Canada office. However, when they get to the Service Canada office, they're being told to. After they wait in line to go back because they don't have an appointment, even though they have direct instructions from uh, people at Service Canada that they've called, there's just a lot of confusion. And it it just seems like chaos. Um, So I started raising this issue last week. Uh, I just the, the government needs to, first of all, admit that this is a problem. Uh, put resources on the issue ASAP to clear the backlog. We've also heard anecdotally that there's tens of thousands of rejected passport applications where the applicant has not been notified yet, and so they don't even know that they need to reapply. Um, so the, and then the, sec- the, the last thing is on an emergency basis, the, uh, the minister and the department needs to put some clarity around a process and probably have like a, a, a triage process here. Um, it's not just end-user, like it's not just Canadians that are trying to get a passport that are calling um, for, for changes. I've also heard from people in the travel agency uh, business, like travel agents, hospitality tourism, that are very concerned um, about this backlog uh, affecting the summer travel season. So, uh, you know, it, this has to get sorted out yesterday. And uh, I, I, I hope the government takes this seriously.
1: Well, you know, I'm I'm wondering, okay, so... Probably part of it is that people uh, did not apply maybe during the pandemic, but surely the government would have a sense of how many passports are set to expire. I mean, do they not keep track of that? Yeah, I I think it's,
8: I mean, that could be part of it. I think also it's just the government should have anticipated travel demand, right? Right. Um, there's many people who have put off traveling and, and essential travel to be either reunited with family or deal with issues that happened uh, during the pandemic, and also people who you know have had canceled trips prior to the pandemic. They're trying to use up travel credits. Um, we've heard I have a lot of people who have contacted me who are in that situation, um, but you also have to understand that like even people who wanted to renew passports during the pandemic had a lot of difficulty because Service Canada had shut down some of their offices. I'm oversimplifying that, but it was very difficult to get passports renewed during the pandemic. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's a bit of a cluster right now. I'll put and, it that way. And, and uh, they need to get on it. They need to fix this.
1: And, uh, I mean, we were all told during the pandemic, uh, your government is working, maybe not in the usual way. And you're saying, well... That actually wasn't happening when it came to passports.
8: Yeah, and so what I've done, you know, because people always say, okay, well, what are you doing to fix the problem? As an opposition member, I've uh, I've written to the government with some solutions. I've been trying to raise this uh, awareness of this in media, so the government knows that this is a political issue. They have to deal with this as well too. So, um, you know, thank you for raising this issue on your show on behalf of so many people that are waiting in lines today. I, I I would hope that this is a simple fix. Um, like, I, I think if the government just turns their attention to it, put some resources on the issue, um, has like a project management office or something where they're like looking where the, the gaps are in, in process, like the lack of clarity and work with members of parliament as well. I, I don't see this as a particularly partisan issue. Um, I just want to get my constituents backwards. protest. <laughs> yeah. um, but this needs to happen like yesterday. This can't be something that they're thinking about um because it, it it's just if you go to any service canada office today where passports are applications are taken it, there's a line and um the last thing people need when they're traveling is is like you know a month to 6 weeks canceled trips again uh the, all of those fees that they're paying uh and we're starting to see that happen more frequently plus the frustration so um, even you know people that like when yeah, parents that are are you know having to find childcare so that they have to go and wait and <laughs> they can go wait in line, like that's another expense. We um, just this needs to be dealt with. Okay. ASAP.
1: <laughs> well, uh, thank you for that, and, and and I hope that it will get dealt with. Thank you very much, MP Michelle Rempel Garner. Thanks and bye bye. I'm now going to bring in NDP MP Taylor Backrack and Andy Wilson, who is a producer, one of our own. He's a producer on the morning zoom with Sam and Jane. Hi guys. Hi am Libby. Hey, Libby. Okay. So we, we heard from Michelle Rempel Garner and she's hearing from her constituents. And we heard from one of our local chiropractors and he had to drive for 45 minutes and stand in line for, I didn't count the hours, uh, from 530 in the morning until three in the afternoon. Uh, but, uh, Mr. Backrack, your constituents can't even really do that because the closest passport office to drive to is 12 hours away, right?
7: That's right. So I, I represent a, a rural riding, a huge rural riding up in northwest British Columbia. And uh, certainly for folks who want to renew their passports and, and travel, um, if they live in a remote or rural community, many of them have to drive, in, in the case of my, the community I live in, they have to drive 12 hours to Vancouver and then line up. For uh, the, the kinds of wait times that we've heard already. Um, so this is a, a huge barrier for everybody. And, and we're hearing from people, as Michelle said, in our offices that are incredibly frustrated because for two and a half years, they haven't been able to travel to see family. Uh, they've put off important trips. And now with the restrictions lifting, they're, they're really looking forward to that travel. And, and to have the stress and anxiety of these lineups having the inconvenience we're hearing about people that are are camping overnight to get their their passports um, it, it's simply unacceptable and we need the government to fix this immediately
1: uh, right and they're saying 25 business days to get to get your passport I mean that's a long time uh, if your travel is booked you're going to lose money if you don't have that passport
7: I, absolutely it, it's You know, I I don't think the fix for this is terribly complicated, but we need the the government to respond. And then that's what we're looking for at this point. We need them to put more staff resources on this file. We need them to communicate to people a clear path, like a, a really clear channel of support. And clear timeline, um, so that people aren't uh, experiencing this extreme stress and anxiety. And uh, you know, we need them to also waive the fees for the expedited document um, because this is an extraordinary circumstance, and and people shouldn't have to uh, go through uh, all of this inconvenience and stress on top of additional fees to get their passports. So there are things the government can do. Uh, we're going to be pushing for them to, to act immediately. This is something that, that could have been foreseen and that frankly should have been foreseen uh, coming out of the pandemic.
1: Okay, I'm going to bring in Andy. And Andy, I guess you found a little bit of, uh, I don't know if we can call it a workaround, but uh, t- tell us your story. You, you live in Hamilton. And you had to drive to Thorold. Yes.
5: So Thorold is a small town just outside of, niagara and i had gone to a couple passport offices in previous days and there was lineups around the block the wait times were four or five hours i had no interest in doing that and the earliest appointment that i could book online was two months away june 24th was the earliest appointment that i could book and we want to book some travel plans in the summer so i went to an office um in thorold and i tried calling I tried online to see if I needed an appointment. Um, nobody answered. It turned out they didn't have a direct line. So I just tried it. And there was a security guard there turning people away. It turned out that the office I had gone to was an express office that was only taking people that had confirmed confirmed travel plans within 25 days. Um, so after talking to the security guard and everything else, I was kind of planning on, on leaving. And I just said jokingly to the security guard, you know, we've had a nice discussion, you and I. Why don't you put your buddy Andy Wilson down on the waiting list, whatever you got there, and uh, nobody will be the wiser. Andy said, well, I can't do that, but I'll tell you about about a a little loophole that we have. If you're planning on driving across the border, you can get in. And I said, well, we're planning on going to the Caribbean. And he said, no, if you're planning on driving across (laughs) the border, we'll take you in. And I looked at him and I said, Libby, I forgot. We're going to Buffalo in a, in a couple weeks. And he said, no problem. We'll take you. And I got in and I was at the passport office, Libby, probably probably for about 20 minutes in and out. It was, so I don't know if I should have said that. But if you go to an express office, that's your loophole. And hopefully it'll work for you. It worked for me.
1: Uh, OK. And I, I want to make it clear. I do not advocate lying.
5: Neither do I. I was told. Not, it wasn't my idea.
1: It wasn't your idea. And I think it maybe it works if you go to the office in Thorold. Cause as we heard from Ali, he, he arrived at the office at 530, got a ticket. It wasn't an appointment, but they gave, he said they were giving tickets to the first, um, 70 people in line at 530 wow. in the morning. He was number 61 and, uh, he got, in front of a passport officer at 3 p.m.
5: That's, I mean, <laughs> I I was talking to the person I dealt with yesterday, and she said when they opened up yesterday at 8.30 in the morning, the line was already 100 people deep at 8.30 in the morning. Now, when I got there, the line had dissipated, but 100 people deep at 8.30 in the morning. How early are these people showing up to get a passport? It's not not fair. You've got to take a day off work, which I was prepared to do if I didn't get my passport <laughs> I, yesterday.
1: <laughs> you were, eh? <laughs> I, I,
5: I was prepared to admit to make the ask to, uh, to the boss for a day off work.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, your secret is safe. Um, Taylor Taylor Backrack I don't know if that uh, loophole will will help your constituents so at least uh, they can get into the office if they drive for 12 hours
7: Well well Libby like it's not how the system should work I think that's that's something most of your <laughs> yeah. listeners will will agree um, you know we we've seen during the pandemic that when the government is motivated they're able to stand up programs almost overnight. They're able to allocate resources and make things happen and, and get services to people. So we need them to, to recognize the seriousness of this situation. We need them to allocate more staff, like immediately. They, they, they need to be dealing with this problem because we have these long lineups and people in incredibly stressful situations.
1: Uh, well, and, they, uh, if, if, I, if I may, they were, they were able to get things done quickly by using the CRA,
7: <laughs> I don't well, know if- <laughs> exactly, and I, I think there was some reallocation of staff resources within the federal government and, and rightly so because people weren't traveling but as we've heard before, um this could have been foreseen. we knew that with that suppressed uh travel demand it was going to bounce back eventually and with the restrictions lifted, now we see this this problem that frankly it, it's not just this week that we've discovered this this is we've been getting uh inquiries about passport uh, about passports for weeks and weeks now and and I think um, you know, the fact that we're in this position really uh, shows that the government wasn't prepared when they should have been.
1: Well, yeah, and I I think they are getting a pretty huge volume of calls, uh, something like 200,000. And, you know, unfortunately, I think the CRA is going to be busy with the tax deadline. <laughs> I don't know if they can turn to passports. Um, no,
7: exactly. In many ways, this is a problem right across, um, you know, across the federal government. And we see, you know, whether it. Uh, social insurance numbers or passports or CRA inquiries, all of these different uh, systems, we see really immigration is the other one. We see really frustrating uh, delays, and a lot of that frustration ends up in members of parliament's offices, and we end up advocating for people. And what we really need is we need public services that are delivered efficiently, that have adequate resources so that people aren't frustrated getting pretty basic things like passports.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, is there anything to say? Was the government uh, fibbing us a bit when they kept saying that, that the government was functioning? Civil servants were paid in full. What were they doing?
7: Well, Well, there there were a lot of new programs that were stood up to deal with the pandemic. And, and, you know, I think that required some, re you know, to give them the benefit of the doubt, uh, some reallocation of effort. Uh, We have a different situation now. And what we need is a a responsive federal government that's able to, um, you know, reallocate those resources back to the programs that people need. Right now, one of those programs is
1: passports. And is it that easy? Can they pivot from whatever they're supposed to be doing to doing something else that easily? Well, I think so.
7: And if there aren't the resources to reallocate, then we need to secure more resources. Um, We saw during the pandemic a real responsiveness, especially at the beginning. Uh, So, um, you know, this seems like a problem that is fixable. You know, when you're in a lineup that's, that's eight hours long, and, you know, you see a limited number of staff processing people's passport applications, it would seem like the solution is to have more people processing the application.
1: It would would seem, wouldn't it? Uh, People, we do have a few minutes left in the segment if you want to call us with your experience, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We're talking about the big backlogs at the passport offices and i know that people especially zoomers are really keen to get back traveling and uh, we've been talking to our own andy wilson who uh you know worked a little loophole in thorold uh to get his passport application so andy you didn't actually get the passports right
5: no, it'll be ready. It'll be ready. Uh, they gave me an actual date. They said May 11th or a couple of days after. And if it's not ready, they they gave me a number to call. I will say, though, the people that were there in line with me, there was a lot of confusion. Um, and it goes back to the government not being prepared. I think there was a lot of questions that people had, a lot of confusion. People didn't know that the office that we were at was an express office and they were only taking people with travel plans within the next 25 days. So, I think a little bit of communication would go a long way as well based on what I saw yesterday. And there was only four people working, which um, was probably not enough either, considering how many people were in line to start the day.
1: Well, yeah. Um, is, is, is that um, part of the bigger problem, uh, MP Backrack? that there's, there's not even clear communication? It's not even like you can go online and see exactly what to do.
7: Absolutely. And, and that's why they're calling our offices, because they're confused and they're not getting the information they need. So, uh, you know, adequate staffing, adequate communication, um, you know, clearly communicated expectations and timelines. Those are all the ingredients of, you know, delivering good public services to people. And um, yes, this is a bit of a different situation because of the pandemic and, and the pent up demand for travel. Um, But it's something that the government should have foreseen. And the fact that we're here right now, I think they they should answer for that. Uh,
1: What was your sense of it? All I saw, uh, and we did try to get the ministers responsible, Um, we did not have any luck with that, was that, oh, yeah, we're doing our best. I mean, if this is their best, it's not very good, I have to say. But what's your sense of the response so far, Mr. Backrack?
7: Well, we haven't heard much, and let's hope that the fact that they're not on your show means that they're scrambling to figure out how to fix the problem immediately.
1: Uh, um,
7: we're gonna we're gonna keep calling on them to fix it until it gets fixed. That's uh, that's our job, and and I think it's their responsibility.
1: Andy, aside from uh, the uh, driving gambit, uh, is is there anything else you're taking away from this?
5: You know, it was. I think. What I'm taking away from it is if you're even if you're planning on traveling months and months away, I would look into getting your passport now. don't wait because like I said if i if I booked online, I would have the first appointment was two months away. I know somebody that um, decided to mail in their application and I know they say it should take uh, you know twenty five twenty six days. she's been waiting for over fifty days, five zero days to get her app and she doesn't know if She'll need to reapply if there was anything wrong in her her application. There's been no communication, so really get it done as soon as you can because you just don't know. You're you're left in the dark. You don't know how long you're going to have to wait till you get your passport back.
1: Uh And may I add something, when I when when I saw this story, never has have I been so happy that I actually spent a lot of money on my last passport getting it expedited and getting a ten year passport. Now you can't get that for little kids. The max they'll take for little kids, which was Allie's situation, is five years. But uh you know, um I don't have to worry about my passport expiring for a very long time. And the other thing, people, is that for most countries, uh, they view your passport as having expired six months before the expiry. Yeah. So, um, Mr. Backrack, what would you like to leave us with on this?
7: Well, I guess first of all, the hope that the government fixes this immediately. And, and secondly, just the uh, empathy for, for folks, you know, who have really important trips that they've been looking forward to, especially to see family. You know, so many people haven't been able to see their family members for years and have booked that travel. And, and to have this stress uh, at the last minute when you're trying to get your passport, it's, it's, frankly, it's unacceptable.
1: Mm, I, I would agree with that. Thank you so much for that. Andy Wilson, last 20 seconds to you.
5: Uh, you know what? If you're at the office um, and you're waiting, I know it's frustrating. They're, the people there—it's not their fault. They really are working their hardest. I saw that yesterday. So, as as hard as it is, be patient with them, and uh, and you know, hopefully, they'll be able to help you out.
1: Very good point. Thank you both so much, Andy Wilson and MP Taylor Backrack. Thank you for that. Thanks, Libby. Okay. Thanks, Libby. And that is all the time we have for today. Remember, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow. Uh, I'm hoping to hear all kinds of reaction to the budget that is coming down at four o'clock. But, uh, you know, won't be made real uh, unless this government is reelected. So we will talk again tomorrow.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.